We're in Advent. This is the third Sunday of Advent. You know, that's the four Sundays leading up to Christmas Day. And uh, what we do each year is try to look from the Old Testament <clears throat> and the New Testament of texts that help us understand the incarnation. That's just the term for God becoming man. God has always been God, and the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, has always been fully God, and He remains fully God. But at one time, He was not man, and He became man for us, and, and He remains man for us, fully God and fully man. That's the incarnation. So this morning, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 2, first part of that chapter, then a few verses after to give one other, other detail. Two weeks ago, we did something that we loved doing during Advent. We try to do it the first Sunday of Advent. That Sunday night, we have our our service of lessons and carols. And this is, we don't do a lot of choral stuff here at Downtown Prez, but we started this as soon as we secured a building to call our own. And it's a service that has its origins in England. It's very lean and mean. the, The lessons are scripture readings. And again, Old Testament and New Testament that talk about why the incarnation and what happened, prophecies of it. And then the carols. The carols are usually older songs that, that correlate to the texts. And it's just really rich. There's no, when we do that service, there's no sermon or anything like that. But In fact, we've even had people, when they were doing the reading, we get church members to do the readings, we've had people begin to get emotional because they felt just how rich and joyful these, these passages are. But there's kind of an odd moment every year in Lessons and Carols, because these, these Scripture texts are pretty set. And uh, the next to the last one, the eighth lesson, is, is mostly our passage this morning about Herod, King Herod, slaying the male children in and around Bethlehem from two years old and, and younger. And uh, so that, that Scripture is read, and then we sing this, this English carol called the Coventry Carol. And it's just really sad every year. And it, it, it's, just, it's, it's sung like a lullaby, but the song says, essentially, don't sing this anymore because these, these, these baby boys are gone. Uh, I'm going to say a little bit more about King Herod in a minute, but he, he was an evil man. And I'm actually going to quote from a historian that said, we've got more information on him than almost anyone mentioned. I think he says, than anyone mentioned in the New Testament, more than the Caesars or Paul, or really, for biography, even Jesus. We've got two scrolls worth from a historian named Josephus about this, this King Herod. He was an evil man. But he was clear on one point, and this is important for us this morning, is that when, when the news in this passage comes in about there being a king of the Jews, that's not a concept. That's not like an idea or an abstraction to make a point. Herod understands it as something real. He is a monarch and understands this is a competing monarchy. It's not pretend. It's real. And on that point, in some ways, his thinking is clearer than ours, usually. So let's look at this. Let's look at what what happens when the news of a coming king comes into the city of of the Jewish people, into the city of Jerusalem. So Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. 
Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Our Father, there's nothing like your precious word. And it is more to be desired than gold than much fine gold, and it's sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. And so, Father, that's what it is, but it may be that to us it doesn't taste good this morning, or it tastes flat, or it tastes foreign. It doesn't seem as good as money or as important as money. Please show us simply what it is, who you are and who we are, what the good news is. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Usually for our family, right after Christmas, we'll, uh, we do what we'll be doing this year. We head down to Mississippi. My wife and I are both from Mississippi. So we head down there usually right after Christmas to see family. And let me, let me tell you something that's happened more than once to our family. There's a, there's a halfway mark in Alabama that just that's about halfway on the trip and it's usually about lunchtime when we're coming back and so that's a place with all the exits and franchises and everything so usually we stop there more than once we've been driving back on a Sunday and I bet almost everybody in this room knows that Chick-fil-A is closed on Sunday in fact Chick-fil-A is famous for being closed on Sunday I'm not getting into matters of the Sabbath. I'm just saying the business is closed 
on Sunday. And like we as a family know that, and we actually have an employee of Chick-fil-A in our family. However, more than once when we've been driving back on a Sunday, we get to that exit and we'll say, all right, let's grab some lunch. Is Chick-fil-A okay with everybody? Sure. So pulling off the exit, I'm already kind of thinking, do I go with the normal sandwich? Do I go, you know, kind of off script, get something different? And we pull up and the parking lot is closed. It's empty. There's no one in the drive-thru line. And we, we remember what we already knew. It's Sunday. It's, it's so odd. I mean, I think that even into the exit, I think if someone asked me, is Chick-fil-A open on Sundays? Nope. <laughs> and, keep, and keep heading toward it. Like, like if someone could speak into our lives in that moment and say, you're in Sunday and you're in a van headed for Chick-fil-A. There's a, there's a, wor- there's a word we don't use a lot um, it's kind of a biblical word, and it's, 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 look, don't just know what you know. Don't just know the data that you know, but apply the data that you know. Connect the dots from what you know to your actual life, and it's heed. So in that moment, we're not heeding what we know. We're just it's kind of compartmentalized. And it's just really easy to do that with truth. I mean, you, you've got your versions of it, and I've got my versions of it. For instance... I'm not presuming everyone here, would, every individual would agree with this. But there's a bunch of people in this room right now where if I asked you, true or false, God is in control of every aspect of your life. True or false? True. Totally true. And just seamlessly move into, will I be okay? Will my family be okay? If something happens to me, what will happen to so-and-so? Will my body be okay? Will my finances be okay? Or my finances aren't okay and what am I going to do? It just, I mean, it's like we can hold on to them simultaneously and not heed the actual information that we say that we know. And that's just the reason the Bible even though it can be hard and, the, and the, the, the terms and the language can be unfamiliar, it really should ring true over and over and over because over and over you've got people who know and they don't heed. And we should see ourselves in that. That they're like us and we are like them. And God often sends prophets to his people and he's not saying, look, hey, here's this new data point. Essentially what the prophet is saying is heed Heed what you already say you know and you believe. That seems relevant to this because what you've got in this text is um, the news of the king coming into an area. And in this passage, I don't see anyone going, no, I don't think that's really true. I don't see anyone responding saying, I don't really think that's really happened. They accept it as, yeah, the, the, the assertion, the claim, the news is true. But the responses differ as to what what they do with it. Some heed, some don't. So let's look at this because really in in the people that that we have in this account, you kind of have the range of human response to the good news. So let's look at it that way. First, the news of the king. And by the way, you know, we use the word gospel a lot. That, That term, even that Greek word, euangelion, that was used during this time, like in the first century, 
sometimes specifically to talk about the news of a, a newborn king or the arrival of a new king or an heir to the king would be called gospel. So let's look at the news of the king and then the responses to it. Okay? First off, the news. And let's start with the wise men, or as they're called, uh, actually it reads the magi. That's plural, the magi. This is fascinating because, you know, the different gospels have different target audiences in mind. They're they're for whomever will read them, but they sort of have nuances as to their focus group. And Matthew is written for a Jewish audience. But interestingly, Matthew doesn't have us first reading about the response of the Jewish people. He first has us seeing the response of these foreigners, these Gentiles from a long way away, the Magi or the wise men. What do we know about them? And this is where I feel like I've got to overcome pretty much every nativity scene, not only that you've ever seen, but that are all up around you in Greenville. I saw one on a church roof. Uh, Usually you've got the baby in the manger and Joseph and Mary. You may or may not have animals. And you've got three, the three wise men. And they have pointed turbans. And there's three. There's no record in the text that there were, excuse me, that there were three of them. We, we usually think there's three because there's three what? There's three, there's three, bing, exactly. Three gifts, their, their names, their numbers are not given. Uh, they're not kings. They're counselors to kings. They're advisors to kings. What they traffic in, interestingly, are the stars and dreams. And I was so struck by, by, I just want to pause on this for a second. I was so struck by, where did, well, Emily was in here a second ago. Um, something that Emily Whitley said when she was giving her presentation about Cambodia. She was talking about her own work to learn the Cambodian language. And she said, when you speak people's language, you get to their heart. And you know, like, what was the love language of the Magi? Stars and dreams. And God is going to use both to talk to them, these non-Jewish men. He's going to speak their love language. They're probably from what would have been called Persia, which would be somewhere around modern-day Iran. Uh, Some scholars think that it's very possible they knew about Jewish messianic expectations. And the prophet Daniel actually had served in an area that they may have come from. So they may have been familiar with Jewish scriptures or at least the concept of awaiting the one who would be the king, the ruler, the anointed one. And one last thing uh, along the lines of it not being three. We don't know how how many it was, but it was enough people that when they came into Jerusalem, it immediately made a stir. And you think about if you're traveling, you know, no car, no plane, no, no train. All these miles from what we would call from Iran to Jerusalem, you, and you have those kind of resources that they have, there's probably an entire entourage to support them. So instead of three men riding into Jerusalem on camels, again, we're speculating, it may have been 20. It may have been 40. But we don't know. But they see this marker of a star, and they interpret it as the birth of the king of the Jews. And so they head to where you would expect to find the king of the Jews, the most important Jewish city. They head to Jerusalem. 
over a long way when they get the news. All right, then you've got Herod. I mentioned uh, this historian who's, who's um, written about him. This guy named Paul Meyer. He used to be a history prof at Western Michigan University. Again, he says that we've got more info about this King Herod. There are different Herods in the New Testament. We've got a lot of info on this one. Let me just give you a snapshot. Dr. Meyer describes him as a paranoid tyrant. He ended up killing three of his own sons on suspicion of treason. Now, just like let that wash over you. Because if you ever met someone who killed his or her own child, you would think that, that's the darkest person I've ever met. He killed three of his own sons on suspicion of treason. He had ten wives. The one that was his favorite, he killed. He killed one of his mother's-in-law. He drowned a high priest. He killed several uncles and a couple of cousins. Uh, And apparently he had a plot at one point to fill a stadium with Jewish leaders and kill all of them. He's a wicked man. And one important historical point to know about him is that by the time we get to this text, this is an older King Herod, so probably old and very insecure, paranoid about his monarchy. But earlier in his reign, around 40, 39 B.C., the Romans gave him a title. And guess what title it was? They proclaimed him, quote, the king of the Jews. And so news gets to him that these Easterners, these foreigners, rode into his city and started... Apparently, they started asking around before it got to him. News got to him that these wealthy visitors are asking... Where is the one who was born the king of the Jews? And it flew all over him when he got the news. And then you've got the clergy. Now, I'll talk a little bit more about this in a second, but in verses 4 and 5, you've got these chief priests. That's kind of the Jewish aristocracy. And you've got the scribes, which would be like biblical scholars. They would be the real, really knowledgeable men about what we call the Old Testament. He assembles them together. He asks them a Bible question, and they answer it correctly. So, all right, news is out in Jerusalem. What are the responses to the king? And and let's let's name three. First off would be what Herod is modeling to us, and it's just out and out hostility. Hostility. Uh, You know the story, but let's read it. Verse 8. Herod finds out. He gets his theological question answered. All right, Bethlehem is the spot. That's just a few miles down from Jerusalem, not far. So he says to the Magi, verse 8, he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Which means what? Bring me word that I might kill him. Verse 16. God speaks the love language of these magi. He warns them in a dream, do not go back to Jerusalem. Do not answer his question. Head home another way. Verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Now, 
here's what a friend of mine has said, and I've quoted this to you before, and I think it's, it's so simple, but it's so helpful. He said, yeah, Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer to pray what about the kingdom? If, if there's a king, then you have a kingdom. What does Jesus teach us to pray about the kingdom? Thy kingdom come. And this friend of mine said, look, when you pray thy kingdom come, you're also praying what? My kingdom go. And that can sound like a little neat turn of phrase, kind of a great little hook. That was real enough to Herod to kill babies. If his kingdom, whoever this is, if his kingdom comes, my kingdom will go. And we're not going to have that. Enough so that you have something like a a contained genocide. Uh, What he's doing is essentially just a bigger, more horrible, visible, violent manifestation of something in our own hearts. And it's interesting. I've I've sat across from from people here in Greenville. I mean, churchy, southern Greenville. And to their credit, they've been honest enough to say, you know, my, whatever, my dad talks to me about this, or my, my wife talks to me about this, or my mom talks to me about this. And I'm like, I know, I know, I know what Jesus is saying, but I'm just not ready to give up what I've got right now. And to their credit, they are actually, they're doing the math. They're doing the math that if he comes in, not just as helper or guru, but if he comes in as monarch, he's going to upset everything. Because he'll be king of my secrets. And he'll be king of my freedom. And he'll be king of my sexuality. And I'm not doing that. And so maybe it doesn't look like loud, angry, violent hostility. It's just an internal, I will be my king and you will not. That's what Herod is doing to the peg. Hostility. And by the way, everything goes back to Genesis. Everything always goes back, actually, to the first few chapters of Genesis. Just connect the dots, that violent act of hostility, all the way back to God saying that there's going to be enmity, hostility between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That's what it looks like. Second response is indifference, which, which is maybe more dangerous. Because hostility, you can see it. But indifference might look like, oh, okay, whatever. Jesus is king, great. And how you see this is in the response of the clergy. Now, think about this again. Look at verse 4. It says, Herod pre-email, pre-phone, which means everything would have had to be a royal messenger or a royal document sent by a messenger he calls together this religious sort of theological gathering, chief priests and scribes, and there's just one Bible question on the table. Verse 4, assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and this is the prophet Micah, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Boom, they got it right. 
And then what's not there? What's not there? Like, if you were home and a close friend of yours just started banging on your door, like going to just bang the door down. You come to the door, you see your friend, and they have this hot and bothered look on their face, and your friend says, do you have a shotgun in your house? Whether you're a shotgun house or a not shotgun house. Like, in other words, whether the answer is yes or no. Once you said yes or no, what would you say next? What in the world is going on? Why are you asking me that? This is King Herod calling together the aristocracy and the theologians of his day to say, I want you to tell me where is the ruler Messiah born? What are we not hearing from them? Why are you asking, O king? Indifference. Uh, I'm, I'm from the south. That shocker. I know. Um, you thought I was from Buffalo, New York, from my accent. But I'm from the South. I'm from the Deep South. And my first job as, as a, an ordained minister was as a, a campus minister in Mississippi. And my experience from that point then on is that the, the hardest person to communicate the gospel to is not the hostile person. It's not the person who says, I'm not a Christian, and I know I'm not a Christian. The hardest person to talk to is the inoculated person. You know, when you're inoculated, you're given enough of the, of the disease for your body to learn how to not really be affected by the disease. And it's like, I've had enough Bible to learn how to not really be affected by the Bible. I've had, I've had enough of Jesus to not really be affected by Jesus. That is the most difficult person to reach. Indifference. But you do have this other response. This is really the one that we, that we love hearing this time of year, and it's, it's the wise men. In this, in this gospel targeted toward Jewish audience, it's the Gentiles. Uh, what happens? Now, this is about to really mess with your nativity scenes. I'm not trying to mess with your nativity scenes. I'm just saying the passage is going to mess with it because the way nativity scenes look is everybody's in a stable, Baby Jesus in the manger, Joseph, Mary, maybe an ox, maybe a she- you know, shepherd or sheep or something like that. But you'll have the three wise men right there. and Everybody's kind of peering into the manger, Joseph, Mary. What does the text say? That they came into a house. And I've, I've read about it. Maybe you've read about it. I've never heard a satisfactory explanation about how this star worked. You know, there have been... There've been uh, conjectures about, well, maybe it was constellations that came together, these stars that align. That's great, and that might have happened around that time, but what you don't have is like a constellation lowering over somebody's house or a particularly bright star lowering over someone's house unless it's just the supernatural work of God to manifest His presence like the way He did with the pillar of fire. Specific geography, His visible presence right there. He did that over this house. So what happens? Verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And please let that be what it is. Don't let that kind of be British, stiff upper lip, sort of huzzah. These are Easterners who know how to like express emotion better than probably we do. 
think of the family when their soldier, sibling, spouse, child comes home. Think of the person when they win the car or win the lottery or whatever. Just, they, I can't believe I'm in this moment. Verse 11, and going into the house, not the stable, into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, think about what has happened here. And I want to be careful because we don't want to be speculative, but I think there's enough info here to say this has to be the case. That however long ago, when that star first started manifesting itself, and they came to this interpretation, and they decide, he's here. We're going to worship him. At least some of them must have had families that they said, I'm leaving with these men, and we're going to Jerusalem. The star of the king of the Jews has appeared. We're going to go, and we're going to worship him. I I would have to suspect there were spouses or family that said, how long will you be gone? I don't know. What will you do when you get there? We'll worship him. And then we'll come home. And so, again, try to overcome your nativity scenes. Instead of stable and three men, we don't know, but it may have been 20, 30 men coming into this little Judean home, and they see him. And I wish I could see their expressions of just, they covered all. They traveled from Iran to Jerusalem. And they see him. Now, here's the weird part. We're picturing a baby. It says that Herod Herod killed two years old and under based on the timetable the Magi gave him. And they're in a house now. They see Mary, and maybe Mary is with a one-year-old, 18-month-old. So here's this little Judean-looking little boy, and they see him. And not to be corny, but just for the visual, these are men who counsel kings. And they all did it. And then they got out their treasures, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Man, Christians have gone crazy on this, trying to interpret what does that mean you're like, gold is the gift of kings, and myrrh is for those who die, and incense is for God. That's, that is clever. It just seems to be that these were valuable, valuable gifts. And they give them to him. And, you know, the mystery is, what happened to that gold? Because Jesus grew up in poverty. That would have been a game changer for his family. So, we don't know. Maybe Joseph and Mary blessed their community with it. But they bring these gifts, and they go. They go home. But they worshiped him. Um, there's a term that is not as common as it used to be, but Christians used to speak in terms of public and private worship. Now, public worship would be what we're doing this morning, what we do on Sundays. It's coming together and worshiping together. And that's modeled in the Bible. And private worship would be a believer by herself, by himself. It could be a woman 
just in a chair on her knees. Just She's talking to God and she's adoring Him or she's confessing sins or she's asking Him and she's for things. She's talking to Him. Private worship. It could be a young man with his Bible open and he's trying to hear God and heed Him and respond to Him. But that's private worship. When we talk about why we neglect worship, whether it's public worship or private worship, where do we usually lay the blame? And usually where we lay the blame is busyness. And it's interesting, this wouldn't work in all cultures, but in some cultures like ours, if work and busyness is merit, then it's almost like busyness is this talisman that you can just wave at almost anything to say, ah, that's why I've neglected you, and it makes it okay. But is busyness why we neglect worship? Or maybe it's not neglect. Maybe it's, I've never worshipped Jesus. I know that. I know about him, but I've never worshipped him. What's up underneath it? The heart of neglecting worship is not believing that the object is worth it. Because, listen, how, how does sports work? Or how does romance or infatuation work? Boy, if you, if, if you get fired up about someone or something's worth, you want to talk about it, you want to look at it, you want to tell people about it, you want to give money toward it, you'll, you, your worship will kick in. That's how the heart works. When, when we neglect worship, it's because we don't think the object is worth it. So, so now what do we do? Should I just stand up here going into Christmas and say, well, he is worth it. Worship Him. Now, don't you feel spurred on to worship Jesus so much more? Well, let me, let me share this with you. We lost a great communicator this week. Uh, actually, Thursday, R.C. Sproul, theologian, author, writer, passed away. I, I read one of his books when I was in high school. It really had a big impact on me. Masterful communicator, big personality. But he spoke a lot at conferences, lots of conferences. And there were different remembrances of him online after he died. And, but somebody posted a video of him. I'd never seen this. And it was when he was at a conference three years ago. I don't know where he was speaking, but it looked like a big church, three, 4,000 people, packed. And it was a Q&A session. So you've got, these men, you've got the, the, the questioner and these men on stage, and then one at the end is R.C. Sproul. So here's what happened. The, uh, the facilitator said, you know, I guess he, maybe they, somebody emailed the question, since God is slow to anger and patient, then why, when man first sinned, was his wrath and punishment so severe and long-lasting? Let me read it again. Since God is slow to anger and patient, then why, when man first sinned, was his wrath and punishment so severe and long-lasting? So for just a little bit, no one answers. And then you hear R.C. Sproul say, Time out. And he had this growly voice. He said, time out. Didn't we just have that question a second ago? That God's punishment for Adam was so severe? This creature from the dirt defied the everlasting holy God. After God had said, the day that you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. And instead of dying, that day he lived another day and was clothed in his nakedness by pure grace. We talked about that two weeks ago. And had the consequences of a curse applied for quite some time. But the worst curse 
would come upon the one who seduced him, whose head would be crushed by the seed of the woman. And the punishment was too severe. And you can look this up online. Because at this point, he looks up at this congregation and says, What's wrong with you people? I'm serious. I mean, this is what's wrong with the Christian church today. We don't know who God is, and we don't know who we are. The question is, then why wasn't it infinitely more severe? If we have any understanding of our sin and any understanding of who God is, that's the question, isn't it? Of course, the congregation started clapping, I think, to say, boy, whoo, I didn't send that question in. I don't know what idiot. <laughs> whoo, that's what I agree with right there. But I mean, he said a mouthful. The king of the Jews, why, why is this baby so worth it? You know, the king of the Jews, that phrase is heavy on the beginning of Matthew, and you don't see that phrase all the way through the book until almost the book end at the end, and where does it show up? That this baby grows up and is a man with no clothes on the cross. And what does it say over his head? Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And there's your king. And why is he up there? He's dying the death he doesn't want you to die. Having lived the life that he has commanded us to live and that we don't. The Son of God is making Himself an object of wrath. The King is making Himself an object of wrath so that objects of wrath can be sons and daughters and live in His royal house. That's why it's worth it. That's why it's worth it. And whether you're hearing that for the first time as Adam said, or the 10,000th time. That's why he's worth it. And I'll just end by saying this. Sometimes in Scripture, God, through his own prophets, or Jesus, the apostles, he invites us to eternal life. And sometimes he commands us. He invites us to kneel, or he commands us to kneel. I often invite. This morning, on the authority of His Word, I'm going to say this. He commands us to worship Him. He commands us to... He led those magi to that house. He led you here this morning. You could be anywhere else. He led you right here this morning. Have have you never bowed the knee to Jesus and you keep holding him off, keep holding him off, thinking, if he is monarch, it's going to upset everything. Of course he will. And why will he upset everything? So that you might have exceeding great joy. Let him in and bow and have great joy. Amen. Let's pray together. Now, Father, we ask that if this is old news, that in a new and felt way it would ring true and go deep down in our hearts and radiate out with joy and life and warmth.
but that if it's new, that you'd give ears to hear and a soft heart. That the new believer and the old believer might together bow down and worship you. Lord, bring people to yourself that they might have exceeding great joy. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.